Well, please turn with me now to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians 1 this morning. So far in this series, we've looked at what a church is, who makes up the church, and who is called to lead the church. Now we've come to uh, the kind of the main category here, and that is what the church ought to do, the church's activity, how a church ought to act. And we're going in a particular progression, and I hope that it makes sense for you all that we started with understanding the nature of the church, what, what is the church, who makes up the church. I mean, that, that makes sense for us to, to follow along in that, in that progression. Then we talked about who leads the church. We looked at that for two weeks. Who is called to lead the church? And we did that before we got to the activity of the church because Ephesians 4.12 says that the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, are uh, called to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The elders are not called to do all the work of the church themselves. They're called to train up the whole church in the ministry of of God and the, the ministry of the church, service to God. We are all equipped to serve the Lord in worship to Him. Romans 12.1 talks about that, that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So because the ministry of the church is called a service of worship to God, it is essential that we understand what the Bible means by worship, and, and especially since that is the goal of our service to, to the Lord. And I want to think about that, and as we begin this, I want to look at it in the context of architecture. Now stick with me, I, the, the, this will make sense. We've got a slide, hopefully, Harry, do we, do we have the slide up? This is the typical construction in a kind of a very basic plan of how a, a Baroque cathedral would have been constructed back in, back in the Baroque period. Do you notice anything significant about the, the way that this is constructed? It looks like a cross. Well, why is that significant? Because the Christian worship focuses on the work of Christ on the cross. So they built this specifically to look like a cross to focus everyone's attention on that. But that's not all. There's, there's some other things that are interesting about this. I don't know if you can see, there's a compass rose up in the top and you see that north is facing up like always. So over here, we have the choir loft, the ambulatory, this whole section. This was where there would be stained glass windows uh, in, this, in this part of the um, of the, the, the cathedral. And this was significant because this is facing east. And it's facing east typically because S Sunday services happen in the morning. And the hope was that as the sun rose, you would get the, the light, the beginning light of the day to shine through these stained glass masterpieces. And those stained glass masterpieces primarily focused on the life of Christ. They would convey images of Christ and His ministry. 
I hope you're noticing a, a trend here between these things. There's another interesting aspect of this. In this whole area, right, right near the center in the crossing, that's where the, the preacher would stand to preach, but he wasn't standing front and center like we have the pulpit set up here. He was off to the side. Why? So that everyone could focus their attention. If they were facing forward, they could focus on the beauty that was on display through those stained glass windows so that the focus was always on Christ. Not on any one person other than Christ Himself. So these Christians were intentional in their work, making sure that everything drew your attention to Christ. And it's not just in crafting buildings or, or anything like this, but also in the way that they crafted their services. If you've had any conversation with me that talks about liturgy, you know that I am a big nerd when it comes to church liturgies. But this was a specific thing that pastors and theologians did for their churches. They would think about the order of the service, building and, con and structuring how the service would go, and they would write out template liturgies for each Sunday, and they would have a specific logical progression from beginning to end that conveyed the full message of the Gospel. You start at the adoration of God, recognizing Him for who He is, and that in turn causes us to look at ourselves and our sinfulness and to confess our sins to the Lord. There is always an assurance of grace and a, and a praise of thanksgiving that came after that because of what Christ has done for His people. There are prayers of intercession on behalf of the people in the church. There are prayers of illumination that the, the congregation would understand and take to heart what was being taught from the Word that morning. We had the actual message, a response after that, a benediction. All of these things were meant to draw the attention of the church to the Gospel of Christ. Everything focuses on Christ. You know, the church has always known that proper worship of God must be done in response to the saving work of Christ on the cross. That is our only source of spiritual life. It is a well that will not run dry. Our lives as Christians come from Christ. They are empowered by Him and through Him. And they must be lived to Him and for His glory. That comes from Romans 11. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Every spiritual blessing or gift that we have been given is given by God through Christ. This is important for us to know because this affects our daily lives. Not just Sunday mornings when we gather here. It affects every part of every single day. The problem is we don't live like this. We don't live as if this affects every part of our days. We get caught up in the false worship of other things. Those people or activities or other things that would divert our attention away from God, they're actually false idols calling us to false worship. 
We are all worshiping creatures. God created us as such. God created us to be worshipers. The question remains, who or what will we worship? And the answer for us as the church is that the church worships Christ in all that she does because Christ is all she needs. And that, finally, after a long intro, brings us to our passage for this morning. Colossians 1, verses 15-20. through 20. Now, it's widely suspected that this passage is an ancient creed that was recited by the early church to declare the divinity and authority of Christ. And when we think of worship being the goal of the church's activity... That means that everything the church does needs to point to Christ directly. So that means that our attention needs to be on Christ directly at all times. So creeds like this in our passage today help keep the facts of the Gospel fresh in the front of our minds so that everything we do is dictated by that understanding of who Christ is and what He has accomplished. So let's read our passage together now. Colossians 1, 15-20 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether in heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of His cross. This is a beautiful creed that we will look at kind of divided into two main sections. These are two... In in this creed, we see two fundamental characteristics of Christ that inform our worship. So the first point in our outline today is that we need to worship Christ as Creator. We worship Christ as Creator. Now, like I said, this creed emphasizes the divinity and authority of Christ. And it starts right away at the, at the very beginning where he says that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And the author of Hebrews picks up on this as well when he says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature. What's interesting here is that the word translated image in our English Bibles is the same word that was used in the Greek Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Genesis 1 when God creates man in the image and likeness of God. It's that same word here. The significance. Here is, is the, the difference between how mankind being made in the image of God and Christ 
embodying the image of God. You know, we, we were created with the image and likeness of God, but that likeness has been marred by our sin. By, in contrast, Christ being sinless is the perfect image of and the perfect representation of God to humanity. He is the perfect fulfillment of the image of God in humanity because He is sinless, because He is God Himself. That is the point that we see here, is that the only way that, that, that Christ was the, the perfect image of the invisible God is because He is God Himself. But then we get to this phrase in the second half of verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. Well, hang on. If He's God, then how is He firstborn? Is this some sort of family line that, that moves from God through Jesus the Son and continues on to, to other people? Is, is, is Jesus some created being? No. No. That is the, that is the, the easy answer to this. Is that Jesus is not a created being. The use of the word firstborn here signifies that Jesus is the first in rank over all creation. The first in authority rather than the first in some lineage or descent. To say that Jesus was the first in a lineage from God would imply that, that Jesus is a created being, but we know that's not the case from passages like John 1.1. 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ is not just a mere human whom God blessed with some special measure of His presence. He is God incarnate. The fullness of deity contained within one man. He has always existed and did not come into being. The only way that He came into being was by the fact that Christ took on human flesh and was born in the likeness of man. But that does not mean that He, that, that, that he began at that time as, as that baby. He had always existed before that. So Paul is using this phrase, firstborn of all creation, to convey that Christ is in authority over all creation. And as, as we saw that He is the perfect visible image of the perfect invisible God, we ought to recognize Him in this position of prime authority as the, the Lord over all creation. And Paul proves this in the next two verses. You know, why is Christ the prime authority over all creation? Because He created it. Christ is the Creator. Paul says that by Him all things were created. You know, what, you know what's encapsulated in the word all there? All. Everything. Everything was created by Christ. Now if this doesn't convince you, Paul goes into greater detail. He doesn't just say all things were made through Him. He goes into specifics. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Paul is saying that anything in the universe, anywhere in the universe, whether we see it or not, was created by Christ, the Son of God. And that includes every earthly power. That's where he gets to thrones or dominions or rulers 
or authorities. They all stand subservient to Christ's authority because He is the one who granted them authority in the first place. He allowed them to be in some level of influence on earth. Now, this is any authority on earth. You know, we think of this in terms of, of human rulers, especially in light of the, this past week with, with the elections that, that happened. So we, we're, we're predisposed to think of human leaders, human rulers. But this is even talking about the spiritual forces of evil that we cannot see in this world. You know, Satan himself is described as the lowercase g god of this world. You know, he has some level of influence and authority over this world at this time, but even he has no authority over Christ. The, the authority that he has on earth right now is given by Christ for a specific time and will be done away with when Christ returns. So Paul is using this, he's trying to build emotion and excitement as he quotes this, this creed and continuing on by showing the, the full breadth of Christ's authority over all creation. And he capitalizes on that by declaring one more time, all things were created through Him and for Him. So in case he forgot anything, he reiterates all things were created through Him and for Him. And not only that, Paul says that He is before all things, which reiterates the fact that He existed before everything else and He is superior to all things. And not only is Christ the superior authority as the Creator, He is also the sustainer of all things. He created it and He sustains it. This is in the second half of verse 17 where He says, in Him, in Christ, all things hold together. The Creator has not neglected His creation and let it do its own thing. Contrary to popular opinion, He is still at work in His universe. Going back to Hebrews 1, again, the, the author of Hebrews says that Christ upholds the universe by the word of His power. He governs all of creation and ensures that everything operates within the physical laws ordained by God at the beginning of time. I mean, think about the expanse of the universe and how we just know a tiny bit about this, this vast universe that God has created. Think of the fact that Christ upholds all of that by the word of His power. He is in control of all of it. He sustains it at all times, now, forever, into the, into the past. And I think about this and the fact that I can't even keep myself together all the time. And Christ is holding the entire universe together without wavering. This is the one that we are called to worship. So what does it look like for us to worship Him properly? How do we address Him in our worship as the Creator and as our authority? 
Well, we're going we're gonna to look first at kind of a negative example. I want you to turn to Malachi chapter 1. Keep your finger in Colossians, but turn to Malachi 1. This is a cautionary tale for us how we ought not to worship the Lord for who He is. We're going to look at Malachi 1, 6-11. through 11. And As you're turning there, just to give some context, the book of Malachi was written after the Israelites had returned to the Promised Land after their exile in Babylon. The city of Jerusalem was rebuilt. The wall surrounding the city was built. The temple was, was reconstructed. And the, the Israelites who had come back into the Promised Land were going about life as, as per normal at that point. But there's one significant problem with what was going on. We'll see it here that their worship of God was displeasing to God. So this is Malachi 1, 6-11. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show any favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Ouch. This is some harsh words from the Lord for those who are, who are His people. The Israelites were supposed to be sacrificing to the Lord by bringing the firstborn of their flock, the, the best of their produce. They're to give first to the Lord and then reap the benefits of their crops after that. So, by bringing disabled and sick livestock as a sacrifice to God was a slap in the face and was not a worthy offering. They're saying, I'm not, I'm not willing to give up the best that I have for the Lord, so I'll just give the, the leftovers, basically. Sacrifices given from the heart in reverence to God would have been costly to the one sacrificing. The person who 
was sacrificing to the Lord out of a heart desiring to, to worship Him and honor Him as He deserves, would have been willing to give up the firstborn. Usually, the firstborn in a flock or the, the first reaping of a, of a crop was some of the, the best and strongest that you had. You know, you would take some of those strong sheep that were usually some of the firstborn, and those would be the ones that you would want to then foster the, the next generation and, and continue on this strong family line. But God insists that they bring that best offering, that first offering to God so that they would show just how highly they value the Lord above all else. God does not want half-hearted sacrifices. He even says in that passage that He would rather have no sacrifices offered to Him than these half-hearted sacrifices. These Israelites who were giving disabled, sick, blind sacrifices to God, they were worshiping their own livelihood more than they were worshiping their God by giving God the leftovers and keeping the best for themselves. So this is a negative example for us of what not to do in service to the Lord because of who He is as the authority over us. If you turn back to Colossians, we can see a few different places where the the book of Colossians gives us good insight as to what our proper response to God ought to be. We're going to start by looking, excuse me, we're going to start by looking at Colossians 1 verse 10. In Colossians 1.10, Paul is praying for the, the Colossian believers that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And Paul wants his readers to be wholeheartedly devoted to pleasing Christ in everything that they do. None of this half-hearted nonsense like what the Israelites gave in, in Malachi 1. They need to be engaged in wholehearted devotion to the Lord. Because He is the supreme authority. He is the one who deserves that level of devotion and praise. Now, one, one specific practical example of this we, we can see in Colossians 3.18. Colossians 3.18 all the way down to, to chapter 4, verse 1. Think about having a wholehearted devotion to please God as we read through these verses that talk about the relationships between different people. Each command in this section has a rationale behind it as well. So you start in Colossians 3.18 it says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So there's a submission of wives to husbands that has been prescribed by God that He lays out and He says, as is fitting in the Lord. So you're doing, you're submitting to your husband because you honor Christ. That's the... That, that, that is the, the motivation behind your action of submission to your husband. 
And husbands are, are not let off scot-free. The next verse says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is meant to reflect the character of Christ who is in authority over all of us but is not harsh to us. So the husband is to reflect the character of Christ to his wife by not being harsh and and loving her and caring for her. This goes on beyond the the marriage relationship into the family relationship where it says, children, obey your parents in everything. Why? For this pleases the Lord. Children ought to be obedient to their parents because it pleases God, not because it pleases the parents. You know, it's nice when my children obey me the first time, that rare occasion when it actually happens. But the, the motivation needs to be not to make dad happy. It needs to be that the we're, we're making our heavenly father happy, that it pleases him that we are obedient, that the children are obedient to their parents. And even, even there, the parents are not left to just do whatever they want. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This is similar to what we saw with husbands. Love your wives and do not provoke them. Fathers, do not provoke your, or do not be harsh with them, excuse me. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So again, we're seeing that the, the parents are to reflect the nature of Christ, the character of Christ, particularly through fathers because the father is the, the primary authority within the home. Moving beyond the family, we see the relationship between a servant and a master. We could even think of this in terms of an employee to his employer. It says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. So there's that wholehearted devotion there too. Fearing, and, and, it's, and it's all based in the fear of the Lord there at the end of verse 22. And he says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance. So the focus is that we're, we're to serve our earthly masters, authorities, the, those, the, those put in authority over us as if we're serving the Lord because He has put that authority structure in place and we are still serving the Lord by like listening to the, those in charge of us. Finally, again, it's not as if the, the masters over these bond servants are given carte blanche to do whatever they want. The masters are commanded in ver, verse 1 of chapter 4, masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Any earthly authority is not the ultimate authority. Because we know who the ultimate authority is, and that is Christ. And any earthly authority needs to reflect the character of Christ, recognizing that He is the one in charge of all things. So these are just a few 
Ways that we see how relationships are meant to reflect our posture of servanthood under Christ as our Creator and our Ruler. Every interaction we have with another person is an opportunity to acknowledge the authority of Christ and to reflect His character. Whether it is a, a, a conversation between two people where one person is in authority over another, or if it's just in a, conver- a discussion between two friends. These are all opportunities for us to recognize that Christ is our Lord and He dictates how we live and how we interact with one another. In humility and, and humble service to God and to one another, seeking the good of the, the other person above our own. So we, we must worship Christ as our Creator and Ruler, but it gets even better than that. It's not just that we worship Christ as Creator. We worship Christ as Savior. You know, Christ is the Ruler of all creation, and that's, that's, that's wonderful. That is something that, that we need to praise Him for. But thinking about it in that general sense, it's hard to really get a firm grasp on it. But then when we see the specific authority that he has over the church and why he has specific authority over the church because the church are those that he has called to himself and is redeemed by his blood and the the lengths to which Christ has shown his love for us, it emphasizes accelerates our love for Him and our service of Him, our worship of Him, all the more. So this is verses 18-20 through of Colossians 1. And we saw in the first half of this that Christ is the firstborn and ruler of all creation, but He has special authority over the church that He established by His death on the cross. This section starts by saying that He is the head of of the body, the church. And think about the analogy of, of, a, of a body. Thinking about the body of Christ with Christ as the head. All the parts of the body cooperate with what the head tells it to do. And if Christ is the head of the church, then we need to act in cooperation with what He has commanded of us what he is telling us to do because he is in authority over us paul says that he is the beginning meaning that he is the first he established the church by being the firstborn from the dead and we see that word firstborn popping up again here and it's the same definition as we saw in verse 15 Christ was not the first person to rise from the dead. He he even raised people from the dead in His earthly ministry. So it's not as if He was the first in, in a succession of people who would rise from the dead. He is the most important person to rise from the dead. His resurrection declared that the sacrifice for sins had been effective 
And death's power was beginning to unravel. And on top of all that, Christ's resurrection places Him as the supreme authority over the church. He is preeminent in everything. Christ even said this Himself to His disciples in Matthew 28 where He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. And it's been given to Him by the power of the resurrection and the, the finished work on the cross. So Paul reiterates here, look, looking at verse 19 now, Paul reiterates that Christ in His human form had all the fullness of deity dwelling within Him. So this is a parallel back to verse 15. We're seeing a lot of uh, parallels back from the first section of this passage to the second section. The firstborn, the, the fullness of God dwelling within the man Christ Jesus. Now, these parallels between these, these two sections show that Christ's authority over all creation and His authority over the church are one and the same. It's not as if one, one level of authority or one title that He has is the ruler of creation or the head of the church. Neither, neither of those supersedes the other because they are all combined into one. Is because Christ is God, that He is the image of the invisible God, the fullness of deity dwells within Him. That is His source of authority, the fact that He is God. That is why His authority over the world, over, over all of creation, and His authority over the church are one and the same. I mean, looking at this passage, we have enough. We, we would have enough incentive to worship Christ just by nature of the fact that He is our Creator. I mean, that's that's enough that He would be willing to create us. The problem is that that even though we may acknowledge the fact that He is our authority, that He is our Creator, without the knowledge that He is our Savior, and without the, the faith that He has given us through the work of Christ, there would be no desire in us or ability within us to worship Christ as He ought. Now, understanding that He is Lord over all creation, He is our Creator, is, is important, but without the, the finished work of Christ, giving us new spiritual life. We, that, that is the only way that we have any genuine desire or the ability to worship Christ properly. We're able to worship Christ as He demands and as He deserves because He has given us new spiritual life in Christ. You know, the church is established by Christ's death and resurrection in order to initiate this ministry of reconciliation. You know, we see in verse 20 that Christ is working to reconcile to Himself all things. So let's look also at Colossians 2, verses 13-15. through 15. Paul says here, "...and you who were dead in your trespasses..." 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So this shows that God is graciously reconciling us to Himself, forgiving our sins so that we may so that we may call others to be reconciled in the same way that we have been. You know, our lives are controlled by the authority of Christ, and that authority has defeated the power of death. We are called to resemble His character, and that means that we declare the message that He has given us. And we praise Him for the fact that He has forgiven us of our sins, and we call those around us to be reconciled to God in the same way. This is all part of the plan of redemption leading to the day when Christ will return reconciling all things to Himself. And that's what we see in verse 20. Through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Remember what we said earlier about the word all? What does it entail? All? Everything? Well, how, Then how all is all here in this verse? Is this passage talking, saying that everything will be perfectly reconciled to, to God? That everything... That, that everything, that every person will be saved? Is that what this is trying to say? Well, the short answer is no. Only those who trust in Christ for salvation will be reconciled to eternal life. The Bible is clear on that. This verse does not contradict that fact that only those who trust in Christ will receive eternal life. That being said, there is an element of reconciliation that will happen for all people. Turn to Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. We're, we're, we keep flipping just like one page back and forth here Through, throughout Colossians and now, now back into Philippians. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. This comes after. Paul's description of how Christ humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then in verse 9, we read, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and what? Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. That includes those who have rejected Him in this life. They confess Christ as Lord in that in that day, in the, the end of the age. But it was only acknowledging the fact that they were wrong 
in rejecting his authority. So they're, they're recognizing at the end, oh, wow, that was, I, 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 re- I realize now that what I did was wrong because Christ is the ruler and authority over all things. He is Lord of all. And because of that, they know that they are awaiting judgment for what they have done in their rejection of Christ and their ungodly deeds. This is not just, you, you don't just see this in the fact that, that those who have rejected, humans who have rejected Christ are judged in this way, even though they will, they will confess Christ as Lord in the end. You can also see this in every interaction that Jesus has with a demon-possessed person in the Gospels. Each time Christ comes to a demon-possessed person, the, the demon inside that person will, will acknowledge openly that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. They were, they, they were willing to admit that. You know, think, think about James 2.19, where it says that even the demons believe in, in Christ, and yet they shudder. So they were acknowledging the authority of Christ even while they were trying to subvert His authority. So this is the... Think about this. This is the fate of all who will reject Christ. When Christ returns and all of creation is reconciled to Him, those who rejected Him will be called to account and judged with eternal punishment because of their rejection of Christ and their willful life of sin. And this is a sobering reminder for us. And this is why we are part of the ministry of reconciliation, urging those around us to be reconciled to God. In 2 Corinthians 5, we see this too, where Paul really digs into this idea of the ministry of reconciliation, where he says, we implore you on behalf of the mercies of Christ to be reconciled to God. So we see the, the negative side of this, but also think about the peace that was accomplished by Christ's death on the cross. It says, making peace by the blood of His cross. That peace will be established for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth as all of creation is restored to its intended purpose. And those of us who have trusted in Christ will bask in that glory of Christ and the peace that He brings. We will, we will enjoy that for all of eternity. We will enjoy being in the presence of God. So to see, again, more, more of a parallel between these two sections. In verses 15-17, through 17, we saw that everything was created through Christ and for His glory. In these three verses, in verses 18 through 20, we see that everything will one day be reconciled to God through Christ and for His glory. 
So how does this inform our worship? You know, I said these were two fundamental characteristics of Christ that inform our worship. What does it look like to worship Christ as Creator and Savior? Well, once again, the rest of Colossians gives us some good insight here. Looking at another part of chapter 1, the last two verses, verses 28 and 29, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works in me. The Gospel ought to be flowing freely from our lips so that we are encouraged and are, and are an encouragement to others. That we are working to build up one another and strengthen their spiritual maturity and be strengthened by others as they are encouraging us with the Word. And we continue to, dis- to study and to discuss Scripture so that we can understand the Gospel more fully and accomplish this, th- this growth maturity, this building up together of one another. Now let's turn to chapter 3 of Colossians. Chapter 3, we'll look at verses 1 through 4 to start off. This is continuing the same theme that, that we, we need to be focused on Christ. Christian maturity means focusing our attention on Christ. And so that's where we see chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. I mentioned at the beginning that uh, worship is seen by what draws our attention. You know, our our focus needs to be on Christ above all else, because that that is what fuels our worship. But when our attention is is diverted by or drawn away by something else, so, something that that captures our attention and, and takes hold of our time and our resources, then that shows what, what we're worshiping. We, we show, what, what we worship is shown by what we prioritize. So this passage at the beginning of Colossians 3 shows that, that we need to prioritize the things of God, the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Do you know the Word well enough that you instinctively seek heavenly things rather than earthly things? Your old self has died. You don't need to keep feeding it. We should be nourishing the the new self by digging into the Word so that our natural tendency is to seek the Lord and His desires rather than our own. One last passage to look at here, and it's also in chapter 3. Looking at chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. 
Colossians 3, 12-17. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The more we understand God's Word, the more we see His character on display in the pages of Scripture. And the more we see His character, the more we will resemble His character in our lives. Just some, and these verses just show some ways that the character of Christ is resembled in our, in our earthly lives. Christ created all things for His glory. He redeemed us by His sacrifice for His glory. He established the church for His glory. He works within His church to declare His glory. And we wait for the day when, we, when He will restore and reconcile all things to Himself for His glory. That is the aim of our lives as the church. Our individual lives and our activity and our ministry as a church body needs to be focused on giving glory to God above all else. It is our duty as His people to seek His glory in everything we do, everywhere we go. Our fundamental goal is to worship Him in everything we do because of all He has done. He is all we need. May our lives reflect that reality. Amen? Let's pray. Father, what a gracious reminder to us of who You are. Thank You for how this informs the way that we live by understanding who You are. The more we see You, the more we long to be like You. Father, I pray that we would each continue to grow in our desire to reflect Your character to, re to reflect your, your grace, to properly convey the gospel in the, the things that we say and the things that we do. Father, I pray that we would be able to say 
prayers like this that, that have carried on through the, through the centuries. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down. Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. May that be indicative of our lives, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.